thank you everyone for joining us for another edition of the safety view i'm very excited about this discussion because i'm going to learn a lot about history and what people thinking about safety today as opposed to where we have come historically so we have joining us today is uh, kevin lombardo and he is the ceo of dorn companies and so, Kevin, I'm going to hand it over to you to kind of introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'll yeah. dive back into the conversation. Okay, great. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, inviting me. And, you know, Dorn's been around 21 years, and we kind of bill ourselves as a wellness-based uh, ergonomic and injury prevention organizations. And we have a number of different services that really help keep people out of the worker comp and out of the healthcare system. And, you know, my, my, <clears throat> excuse me, my introduction to safety actually comes differently. I, prior to joining Dorn back in 2016, for about 15 to 18 years, I was CEO of some pretty decent sized organizations. I was, a, I was the financial officer of companies and growing up, I, I saw that people would always start every executive meeting, board meetings, with a discussion of safety. Well, after a while, it was great, but I kind of watched and it seemed perfunctory, right? Somebody put up a couple of slides, they have the conversation, then they move on to the real agenda of the meeting. But it really got me thinking about it. So when I had that opportunity to um, become a CEO, one of the things I did, um, be it right or wrong, is I elevated safety to report to my office of the CEO because in my world, it needed to be different. It needed mm -hmm. to be segregated and independent. Safety's always been a high priority for me from sitting in those meetings where, yeah, we kicked it off and talked about safety and to joining organizations where we did the same thing, but it was important enough that it took, a, you know, if we had a two hour board meeting, it was a half hour of that discussion. So it was important enough. And so it was always forefront for me so that um, after doing my 30 some years in the corporate world, decided to get involved in a small service oriented company like Dorn, I'm, I'm glad I chose the safety arena because <laughs> I'm, I'm passionate about it. I'm a believer in it. Uh, I believe that what we do not only keeps people safe and keeps them um, going home the way they came, but also what we do, we help people to be their optimal themselves, their optimal selves, be it at work or outside of work. And again, I'm going to keep it non-commercial, so I won't get into the details of that, but that's what I really enjoy uh, about what we do and the impact we have. Appreciate the, the invite to be here today. Before um, we started this discussion, I really didn't know much about the history of safety. I'll just be transparent about that. And so I went and I did a little bit of digging and research. And I was really floored when I found out that safety in preventing accidents, it actually can be traced back um, to second millennium. That's really cool. That's something that we're involved in has been around for such a long time. And then it, it got me thinking again about, well, what are the phases of safety? Like we talk a lot today about all these different theories. So I kind of dug a little bit in that and I found out that there's actually four phases in history of, 
of safety. And I'm not, I'm just kind of going to be leaving it there and to see, does anybody else have anything they wanted to add on this thought about the development of, of uh, safety? Yeah, I think um, I had the pleasure of being in quarantine a, a few weeks ago. Um, I read Carsten, uh, Carsten's book on Heinrich and uh, it gave me the whole flavor about the industrial side of like accounting statistics and the, the birth, if you like, in the US around the engineer side and love him or hate him or, you know, it, the, the controversy about uh, the new view, new safety and all, all the rest of it and what was what was good. Reading, reading that book, it just took me back in time to the 30s and the 40s. Um, and I think the, the pre-Great uh, War era was a time when they were thinking of people. And I think if there's anything to be said about what was brought to the table during that time was quite possibly the fact that through trial and error, we're all learned by mistakes. I think he was looking more at how he could show to the leadership and people in these machine shops and that, that by incorporating this level of safety, and I know he talked about the foreman a lot, which was equivalent to sort of middle management of our modern time, if you like. So it's been rebuked quite a bit about the terminology, but it's an old language he's using, of course. But uh, I felt that he was looking at how to protect people. So although you think of the major events, you know, in our lifetime, or quite possibly our parents, I think before that, especially in the US there, there was that that ideal that, you know, it, and I think originally it was like, well, if we don't kill too many of the workers or injure them, there'll actually be more workers or less injured people to be able to operate the machinery. So it, it was probably brought in off the off the back of that. But it, it, what I noticed reading through it, and I mean, it's actually fantastic the depth that it goes into with the research, and a lot of it you just can't get hold of yourself on that, was uh, basically, uh, more to do with that, that protection of people and thinking of the people and, and also making it a selling point protecting that workforce a selling point to the upper management say that you're going to be more economic your business will thrive because you'll have less wastage um, so mistakes and errors that were being made were, were brought out by that so i enjoyed that and it took me back to that time and i wasn't too familiar with that time and of course, then during the war, it became quite pertinent because there was less people, more women were entering uh, the, the factory sites. And uh, when it came to munitions uh, production and stuff like that, there, there couldn't be errors. So a lot more thought went into, um, you know, human factors, ergonomics, the, the way people were working and how could they, they could make it efficient. So I, I, I came away with a, a whole new grasp on that sort of era of, of the history. It was fascinating. Mm. That's, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. So thank you for sharing that. Gabe, what were you thinking? Yeah, I was thinking a lot of uh, along the same lines, um, especially with uh, looking at how safety has started to be implemented, not just to protect the people, but to protect the product or the environment from the people. Mm. Um, you see this a lot in, uh, in the tech industry, um, semiconductor production, um, even in the medical industry where you've got literally billions of dollars that are putting into R&D and they're developing something that if someone were to 
to have an incident with it, it would not only injure the person, but it could actually ruin the thing that they're actually working on. Um, I, I think that there's been some organizations that have probably gone uh, the, the wrong direction in that, in focusing more on protecting the thing instead of the people. Uh, and it becomes more of a, a financial or an economic incentive to have safety in place instead of just um, looking at it as saying, well, we're here to protect our, our workers because it's the right thing to do. We're here to protect our stuff because our people are messing them up. Um, I, I think that that's probably, uh, I've seen that happen before, uh, probably the wrong perspective on that as well too. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues to develop. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm gonna go to Kevin, our guest, and then over to uh, Tanya. Yeah, real, real quick, just to let, uh, piggyback on what Gabe just said. You know, we, uh, uh, I'll call it a former client because they had to uh, shut us out after COVID and discussions of potentially coming back, but uh, Fisher Scientific, they actually have a person whose job is to liaison between product development and the plant and his whole role is around the safety perspective of that. So depending, you know, so that as they're making the product and, and it, they're really designing the product development side in a way that yes, the thing they're making is safe for whoever the user is, but how they make it is safe. So there, there's actually a role that they actually have that liaisons between the engineers and the marketing people who design stuff and know this is the greatest thing in the world that our market's going to love and how they're producing it. And from a safety perspective, and I could tell you in my previous lives where I've worked for manufacturers, those two departments only talked after product development created it and said, now go make it. And, and then it was catching up. So they're, they're doing it in the forefront. And I think we're going to see more and more organizations moving in that direction, hopefully. And I think it's also hearing more stories like this so that we're even more aware about what's going on and hearing other people's, other organizations' best practices. Tanya, what are your thoughts around this? And then so, Pete has his hand up later. Yeah. So I just wanted to offer, do you guys, there, okay. I just wanted to offer that, um, um, Eric Hallnagel has um, some retrospectives on the evolution of safety going from, um, you know, industrial and technical and, you know, human centric and organizational centric. And, you know, so I've seen a lot of this, this kind of evolution through a lot of Hallnagel's material. Um, but what I wanted to talk about maybe was looking forward because I have attended a few talks where there seems to be a lot of emphasis on artificial intelligence. And unlike maybe this discussion and this group and the discussions that we've had here, um, there's not a whole lot of caveats with the confidence in artificial intelligence being able to run our workplaces better than, uh, than they are currently. I'd like to just offer, um, uh, a, it, it's just a, a story basically because I haven't talked to the researcher uh, who is uh, Asher Balkan, who donated this, this little tidbit, but uh, 
Microsoft or Google, one of those two, had decided to engage in artificial intelligence on their own. So just that one of their teams decided to do something. Mm -hmm. And they wrote some algorithms. They didn't feel like pulling an all-nighter. So they said, you know what? It's developed enough. Let's set it on Twitter overnight in order to get the data kind of thing. And the white paper that Asher was talking about describes their horror. I can see Gabe uh, responding to this. Their horror that their AI became the most white supremacist, misogynistic, racist, just within about, you know, nine hours looking at Twitter. So I just would like to make sure that we're aware of AI not necessarily being the be-all, end-all that a lot of people seem to think it might be. That's pretty stunning. <laughs> I hadn't, Peter, heard, I hadn't you... heard that story, but why did that happen? I don't really understand why that happened. Could you explain a little bit more time or, or Gabe? Well, it, I mean, maybe Gabe can, can help uh, fill in any gaps that I have, but the programmers program the algorithms, how the data is to be treated. So what decisions, what you do with the data kind of thing, but they don't actually, the machine has to learn and you have to give it data to learn from. And so that data that from which it learns is going to get it then to program its neural networks and figure out how it's going to decision-make going forward. But as this story um, shows what data you choose to give the, the algorithm to learn from is critical. Yeah. And going out on Twitter, as this team from Google or Microsoft figured out, was not the best choice of trying to teach a neural network how to learn. So if you hang out on Twitter, you're in danger. <laughs> well, let's put it on LinkedIn and see what happens. Peter, what, what are your thoughts? I was just going to go back, uh, yeah. uh, not to the AI part. Uh, so in, I don't know what, uh, how much experience people have with the different standards. So in mind, because we did, uh, we had the 14,000, we had the 9,000, we had the 22,000 of food safety, we had all of it together. But uh, as time went on, and even with the, when they uh, uh, released the new uh, updated versions of all those, I guess, 2015, there was risk assessments in there and even the environmental part of it uh, before that, you know, we had checklists because if they were going to bring a new product and if we were changing something, we had already started that. That was part of uh, the audit process is to get uh, the environmental, but typically, you know, my experience to do both of them all the time was that they, they go together, they, they mesh. So you were doing that anyhow, in a sense. So, you know, as time went on and the safety is, you know, has gotten obviously a bigger uh, standing in, in everything. But, you know, that was part of the reason they went from 18,000 to the 45,000, right? So to make sure that they're, they're all, uh, they all meld into each other now. So they all have to have risk assessments. They all have to, you know, so I think on that side of it, the, you know, depending on where you were, I mean, when I first started, I could tell you safety was not, that was probably 20 years ago. Uh, I'll say the company, anyhow, it was Magna. And I was doing another job uh, and they basically, because they were having, they were having so many accidents, 
they decided to have environmental uh, health and safety coordinators because, you know, their Douglas IB claims were going out, out the roof and they were getting, you know, a lot of heat from the government. So, you know, again, that's within 20 years, basically. So, uh, you know, depending on which company you went to, you know, they looked at it differently. So, uh, depending, you know, which type of industry you're in and like, you know, I was at Goodyear, you know, it was more of a primary industry making rubber. So the machinery in that's a little bit different and how they, you know, how they related to the safety and that and the ergonomics and that were, they all change. Mind you, now it's much better now. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I agree with everybody here, but, you know, there was dark periods not very long ago about, for safety. So um, now whether some, I, I can't speak to a whole bunch of industries, but uh, at least the few that I was in are, you know, have kind of evolved, but I mean, there's still a long way to go. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, no, we still do have a long way to go. And even in this discussion, you know, we've looked at um, from protecting the the product right through to coming back to again looking at how can we protect our people, and um, some discussion in between that. And and so I want to throw out the question about how do we evaluate if we are evolving um, health and safety in our organizations? Did anybody want to kind of? share some thoughts about that question. Otherwise, I'll throw it over to Kevin. All right. Okay, let's go Gordon first and then Kevin. Gordon, share our thoughts. Yeah, sorry, I, I wanted to hold on to your, your history lesson there. And, and I thought to myself, going back to basics of what HSE or HSEQ or HSSE, wherever you, uh, you come from or what your companies are trying to launch there, is that the whole aspect of the basics is is making sure that your procedures, what you're making, and and your people are safe and, and everyone's safe. But I, I'd like to think the whole the whole gambit with this is that we learn lessons as we move forward as a as a human race. But it appears that since you touched on the hist- on the history topic, that you can see that we tend not to learn, or like some commenters have said we tend to forget rather quickly. So even in modern times now, where a whole part of a package, like for myself in the marine environment, they'll have a lessons learned package and everyone attends at the end of the project, here's the lessons learned, this is the good things that happen and let's incorporate in the next one. But being corporate as well, see they don't share them with uh, with other companies, uh, even in the maritime environment. Of course, unless it's uh, usually somebody's deceased and they have to put out a flash and uh, the, the, whole, the whole, whole world knows about it. But I was thinking back to uh, things in my lifetime, like Piper Alpha and how that affected the North Sea oil. But of course, then at a later time, we had another tragedy with the uh, BP Horizon Macondo. And I think of things like the uh, Moco Cadiz that had a big impact, you know, and we learned lessons from that. And, and we had clean up routines for beaches and we didn't allow massive tankers to be single skinned and they became double skinned and things. But of course, then in the last two years, we've we've had uh, tankers uh, roll up on the rocks on beaches and decimate coasts. So I think it's all, it's great having history, and I know we all want to look forward. But I think sometimes you have to take that step, like like you uh, started off this conversation, and then looking back and then saying to yourself, you know, have we really learned so much? You know, for all the new systems, uh, all the different ways of doing safety, and 
have we got a culture now or not? I think some of the real basics of, of what what uh, safety proposes to achieve, some of that people need to take a, a step back, look back and think, right, wh where were those lessons learned? How is it that we're still doing the similar things again? So there's a lot to take from that. And I think as being a practitioner as well, if you haven't got that mindset to look back at all those things, you know, that's, that is the building blocks of your ability to be able to look forward then because we don't have crystal balls or time machines. So a lot of what we do is based on our past experience so that the baby steps that we've taken at the beginning or the lessons that we've learned, I think the thrust should be about knowing more about that and how those things went wrong so you don't repeat them. And as we all know, there's a lot of repeatability and a lot of things that go wrong. And, and especially with the climate and the environment as a couple of gentlemen have touched on that subject as well. So those, those marine incidents uh, didn't protect people and they, they were devastating for the environment as well. So yeah, double whammy. That's my two penneth. I love what you were saying about that, that being the building block to improve, to, you know, like look at what we've learned to improve and then move forward. But I think also what I'm hearing there, you're saying is a big piece is actually sharing out what was learned. Like um, as an employee health and safety person who was in the store, a lot of times the the management would meet, they'd have these big discussions and, and, and um, come to their aha moment, but then we'd never hear anything again. And then the same accident would reoccur, right? Because management came to what needed to improve and stuff, but they didn't incorporate the people who were the ones doing the work to actually go through that learning phase. They would just come and say, here's what you need to do. And in my experience, that kind of ruffles feathers. People kind of, adult, adults get upset when you start telling them, here's what you need to do and they're not included in the conversation. And so when, when I'm looking about evolving health and safety and going to what your point about looking back at, at what we've learned, at not so much also just what went wrong, but also I think what went right. I think sometimes we don't look at, hey, what, what went right that we, we missed having something happen, right? Doing the positive. Uh, Kevin, did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, a, a couple. Um... Just, and again, this is just personal perspective, not necessarily what everybody should should buy into because everybody kind of has their own view of this. But just to kind of pick up where Gordon stopped and then moving forward, um, a couple of things pop out to me. One is, you know, we, we talk about culture a lot and the organizational culture. My definition of culture that I formed many, many years ago is culture is the sum total of conversations. It's not the placard on the wall and the posters. When we get a new client, they say, hey, do you have the posters that we could put on? Yeah, we have the posters we put on your wall. But, you know, after a week, they become white noise. Right. And so it's to me, it's the sum total of conversations that everybody's having every day. And, you know, one of our taglines is empowerment through education and engagement. And we believe that because organizations empower their employees to be successful various ways, whether I'm giving you a forklift, hand tools, safety equipment, steel toe shoes, you're empowering them. 
And we just believe we're just another tool for organizations to empower employees. So, but if the employees are having the conversations, if they're having it over lunch, hey, you know, what'd you think of that body mechanics training program? Or my gosh, I'm wearing the exoskeleton suit next week. I, I was with a client and we don't sell exoskeleton suits yet, but they were testing it out and people loved it. It got people engaged and it was fun. And it, it, it you know, once you can, that's how you shift the culture because that's the sum total of the conversations that are going on. Obviously, you have to have senior management support buy-in, and they have to walk the floor and talk, you know, walk the talk, and 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 all that good stuff. But it has to be those conversations that are happening. And then, you know, I, I looked at Rose's note, and, and that she had there about the consciousness. The other thing, and, and I'm a believer in this, and and I and then reality says, okay, but we have next qu next quarter's numbers to make, so take this for what it is. Uh, maybe I should have been an educator in life instead of a practitioner here. But you know, I used to work with Native American tribes in a previous life, and when they think about things that they do, investments they're going to make, so forth and so forth. And there's a lot that we can criticize how they operate and all that good stuff. But one thing that I took away from them, their whole concept of seven generations. What is it I'm doing today that's gonna impact seven generations later? And even though China is our biggest competitor in the world stage, they do 25 year strategic plans. And let's not, you know, we don't have to get into human rights issues and stuff like that, but when they think, they think about what the next 25 years will look like. We and the rest of the, and Europe's probably somewhere in between. They're not 25 years. They're probably, and, and Gordon and others could probably speak to this. They're, they're, they're better than the US. The US is how do I make next quarter's numbers? I lived it. I was CEO of a division of a public company. And every time I passed the chairman in the hallway is, hey, what's the quarter look like? So I learned to walk around with my one sheet of paper that had all my numbers so that I could, you know, constantly say that, oh, we're on target, boss, we're on target, boss. It wasn't about, hey, you know, great job having zero incidents for two years at plant X, Y, and Z. What can we learn from there to take it to our other 150 plants in the other divisions? When you start changing those conversations, when you start thinking about seven generations, Again, that's a little bit more idealistic, but it is working out there in some capacity in some of those environments. And again, we could find fault with China and we could find fault with some of the Native American uh, things that they do and don't do. But conceptually, if we can start thinking that way and get our organizations to think about, you know, we've got, by the way, and I'm gonna end with this, we've gotten away from five-year strategic plans. Now everybody does two to three year strategic plans, maybe even one, because we all sit and say, well, technology is changing so fast and the world's changing so fast, we have to be adaptable. I agree, but conceptually, what do we wanna be seen as, as an organization down the road? And if you can start having those conversations, even if it's in the hallway with a friendly colleague that maybe has a little bit of influence in another area, and it doesn't have to be a big, hey, I'm going to put on a big PowerPoint presentation for the entire management team. You'll get there. And it might take you three years, but start having those conversations. Start thinking about seven generations or a, even a five-year strategic plan again versus the 25-year, but something different. So I think to answer the question, though, very specifically, I think EHS is evolving. 
I think it's evolving because of honestly programs like this. We partner with another group where we do think tanks and, and bring safety managers, directors, and global EHS people together. And we talk about some of these concepts, not about what's the best, greatest technology, but what is the role of technology in safety? And it's not about the technology. And even though we resell technology, I never talk about the technology we resell because that's not the important point. What's the important point is, what's the role of it? So I do believe EHS is evolving, having more programs like this, at conferences, having uh, speakers, and I speak at a lot of conferences, talking more conceptually versus very specifically about a product I happen to want to sell while I'm there, that starts changing the dynamics. Uh, Kevin, I would like to further ask you um, a question because this whole thing about strategic planning, uh, a lot of people uh, have stopped because frankly, spending all that effort and time turns out to be a waste. Mm -hmm. uh, the plans are never executed. Um, they just sit on the shelf. And then uh, within a few months, a strategic plan, people are saying, what were we going to do again? <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're yep. right. So I think what you're talking about is very important. And I invite the group to think about, you know, when, um, is it really about writing a strategic plan or is it more about how we think about, uh, you know, the functioning of the organization? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't even have words because you, you inspired me to think about that. that we do need no, to. Rosa. Yeah. And, and Rosa, I, I think just to clarify, it's not about the plan. It's about those conversations of, organizationally, what do we want to be looking like five years from now, 10 years from now? It's not about the products. It's about our purpose. And, and I do believe in this. It's not just academic talking here. Again, maybe I should have been a professor, but it's, it's more about what is our purpose of an organization and, and, and what, you know, at the end of the day, you'll get there on the products and you'll get there on the services and all those other things. Then I think it's important to have a roadmap or else you start investing in 10 different things and, and you could just be spending money, spending money foolishly. But you got to start with the purpose and why are we here? What are we doing? The purpose, not only for our customers, the markets, even the community, you know, should have an aspect. And even if you're doing something that never touches the community, at some point it does touch the community because you're selling to somebody who's selling to somebody who's selling to somebody who eventually touches the community, right? So you have to think about that. And I'll give you one last example. I used to be in the printing industry. We used to make business forms and it was very unexciting. Okay, what was our purpose? We made medical documents before everything was electronic. So I am aging myself. Well, if the form isn't correct, the doctor could get something wrong, the nurse can get something wrong, a person's life could be at, at risk. And honestly, once we started talking to our employees about that, our errors went down and they started thinking about that, the purpose of what we're doing, not we're putting ink on paper, but what was the purpose of what we were creating? And, and so I think, again, it's, it is a more conceptual thing and I think, I, I still believe you start small, you go to lunch with a friendly colleague that wants to engage in that conversation, they start engaging and it, it builds upon itself. 
going going to the C-suite and starting to have that discussion will get, you, you know, you're, you're going to look at you and go, what? <laughs> Unless you're in that organization already that has having those conversations. So hopefully, Rose, I cleared up what I was thinking about when I said strategic <laughs> thinking. That's yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know, it's interesting because I've always have uh, five-year plans. At the beginning of every year, I actually do what's called a vision board. And every year I update that vision board a little bit. And I put it just, you know, it's kind of funny, like the one pager for me, Kevin was five years on a grid. And then what do we need to get there? But you always kind of felt like the lonely person because you'd have this five-year plan and other people would be like, what are you doing? We're just doing one for six months or, or a year. And I'd be like, really? You get to your goals that way? This is really weird. Now, Gabe, you, you, you pinged me and said you had a little bit to share on this. Yeah, this is a very timely conversation as I'm uh, probably about a few weeks away from um, doing my annual strategic planning. Um, and uh it, it's kind of a time that that me and a couple of uh, well one other person on the executive team we get to to take time away to really work on the business not just in the business and a big part of that is being able to look at these kind of audacious <laughs> goals and, and things that are difficult to measure like culture and innovation and strategy um, kind of like like what you were talking about Kevin these are things that are important and they are very nebulous but whether you want to admit it or not they are important to the direction of the organization um, i honestly believe that if you have short-term focus you're going to get short-term results i mean that's why people that are focusing on just how the stock price does in the next quarter for their company because their bonus depends on that they're going to take actions that will only affect that next quarter. They won't necessarily move the, the performance forward for the next five, 10, 25 years. Um, but those conversations need to happen. And I think it's up to leadership to be able to make those connections between these long-term goals and how it affects a person's activity today. I mean, if you have someone that is just, you know, their, their focus is to to lay down X amount of concrete <laughs> today, and that's what their deal is, they might have a very difficult time understanding how implementing AI as part of safety is going to help the entire culture and, and their, their work in general. It's up to leadership to bridge that gap and bring it closer to, to be able to communicate that to the people that are in the field. Um, and, and as you said, Kevin, it's going to, to change the way that people perform. Um, but I think that those conversations do need to happen. It can feel like a waste of time in the short run. It can feel like a lot of investment of money to do it, but the long-term benefits of it and how it changes going forward is going to be felt much, much later on. And people will think you're crazy initially. Um, but, uh, I think as Elon Musk said, everything is crazy until it's not. <laughs> Thank you, Gabe. Now, I know, Gordon, you've been waiting for a while. Did you want to share? And then we'll go to Tom. Uh, it, was only a, it was only a quick one to, to go back. Kevin was saying I'm having that conversation. I just wanted to throw in, uh, although I'm working in Asia at the moment, I'm in the UK, in our sort of industry, I, I hear quite a bit now the conversation that's going along the lines of, you know, it's not, uh, uh, you know, you just pitch up another day, another dollar. And I know there's a whole influence in, in, in employment now where, People are looking for sustainable uh, 
or ethical companies to, to work for. But uh, I, I picked up on a point when he, he said about uh, value and having purpose. And I think that's one thing that, you know, the employers have got to think about what their, what their plans are, the strategy, you know, because it was a time people would pitch up, really didn't know what would happen in six months time. You know, I'm talking about the employees and that, or somebody that's going to put their services to a company one of a better word and uh, I think there's a lot more people that don't actually think along those lines and they're, they're now thinking about you know not exactly uh, the reality or what's my meaning of life but in so much as you know this company that I'm going to give my time to uh, the exclusion of my family or my leisure or whatever else I want to do um, yeah they, they need to have a purpose you know what, what is this company doing what, what is the achievements and I think you get the, the buy-in factor and then this culture built back on it because you know, if you've got that buy-in and people believe in it, that you know that's where you're getting your efficiencies and, and people wanting to uh, actually actually go out there and do it. So if it's an exciting place to work, like Kevin was pitching up, then with about the conversations, you know, uh, make it a fun place to be as well. There's a whole whole lot to be said for that. And like uh, Rosa actually picked up after the, the the first part of my conversation as well was uh, you know all the good things that go well. So hey, yeah, we 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 get some things wrong. Uh, we take a two steps back, but one step forward but all the good things that are going on that's that's the building blocks to build on it so i think a lot of people are thinking about the, the value in what they're doing in their working life or you know whatever widgets they're doing you know does it bring value to people and to the company yeah no i like what you said about um the time needs to be of value you know it reminds me in one place i i worked um one of the executives for customer ser service she talked about time to value, right? And so when we're engaging with them, are we giving them time to value because they're spending the time? I think you're right that we also have to look at that in through the worker's lens. Tom, what are your thoughts around this, keeping in, in line with what we're discussing? Yeah, I mean, I'm listening to this discussion and it's quite interesting because often these discussions tend to channel if you like, it depends on the community. Sometimes it just depends on the catalysts. And I was thinking back to actually how much safety has changed. And maybe it's easier when you look at major accidents. I know we started off the discussion with Three Mile Island. But for example, in the UK, there's a lot of discussion about a, a tower block that burnt, Grenfell. But when you look at the lessons, there's some very similar lessons from an incident about 40, 50 years ago called Summerlands. And you get the same with, there was an incident in the press industry called Flixborough get the same thing following up. So to some extent, we, we not only learn the lessons, but there was a very famous guy in the UK called Trevor Kletz, who asked the question in terms of looking at safety, in terms of why do organisations forget? Why do we, we keep getting these things wrong? And one of the things that strikes me is when you look at a, at a learning event, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a major incident, like and we've talked about Texas City with BP or Deepwater Macanlo, Deepwater Horizon, everyone comes away with different lessons and they're all legitimate and valid, but it depends whether you're an engineer of a particular type, a safety expert, uh, a manager. And so I think one of the things is to try and make sure that when we're managing safety, we recognize the breadth of the discussions because it's very easy for us all to channel. I'm an engineer and I tend to look at the techie issues and become quite frustrated. And, and we tend to, for better or for worse, end up becoming quite preachy. We're telling people and You've seen it in some of the language. We want to teach lessons. We don't want to make it easier for people to learn and share their learning. And 
I mean, one of the things for me is in terms of safety is trying to retain uh, an open-minded approach and somehow avoid channeling. And I think we've all got our own personal preferences. Often they're, in, they're influenced by recent accidents or incidents. You know, um, you, you, you apply something which hurt you recently and hurt the organization or hurt your industry. Uh, and one of the sort of simple templates that I use in these discussions is um, people process plant or product, the hardware, if you like. And we've talked a lot about people and we've touched on um, process. I mean, Gabe gave a good example. If you measure people by square meters of concrete, they're going to behave in a particular way. Um, Kevin had a good example where you really got the improvements, not by looking at the production line, but by talking at the people who were designing the products. Go, go back, look at a, introducing a new process, try and re-engineer the process. And also when you talk about um, plant and product, for me, particularly we were talking about quite complex assets. You're talking about, say, Three Mile Island, but any large complex production system, often the unsafetyness of it, if you like, the risks, were engineered in many stages up what I call the intellectual supply chain. If you choose a bad process, there's nothing really you can do later down. If you've got a big inventory of a nasty toxic product, you've got problems. And it's interesting, if you look at gigafactories at the moment, they're quite tricky things to engineer and they're not being engineered in a way that makes them inherently safe. You know, they've got big inventories of nasty chemicals and big inventories of batteries being charged. And I suspect there'll be a few big fires before we learn we need to go back up the intellectual supply chain and come up with a better design process. So I just think when you're thinking about a, a safety opportunity, really, and this is an opportunity to reduce risk, kind of try and balance the focus on the people, the process, i.e. the way we manage things and people, and the product, the hardware. Because often those, the, the things which determine the configuration that we're being forced to manage goes a long way back up the chains. Um, I guess... Uh, and this is just to try and retain the balance. Tom, Absolutely. how do you, how do you uh, keep from getting frustrated? Or, or just this morning, in, uh, they were saying that in Beirut, that explosion was caused by a huge amount of fertilizer that was being stored improperly, and that everybody knew about it. Um, and so, it, and everybody knows the dangers inherent in that. So, but it still was there and it, and it killed what 113 people and injured 7,000. So um, what, what do you do to, to not give up and to not get frustrated when the same things happen over and over? I mean, I, I think that, I mean, that Beirut explosion is <laughs> particularly extreme and unpleasant and tragic. And I think one of the things that strikes me, and everyone presents it as, you know, it was a huge quantity of ammonium nitrate stored in a, you know, completely irresponsible way. Well, actually, another way to look at it is, you know, I mean, I visit plants <laughs> in the UK which produce millions of tonnes of ammonium nitrate. We all do. You know, the, the agricultural industry in the US processes huge volumes of this material. And why is it safe? Because you've got thousands and thousands of conscientious people working in a good way. You've got well-designed warehouses and transport processes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's important to not lose faith, if you like, when it all goes wrong, but use those to motivate you 
to the benefits of getting it right. You know, we need fertilizer to feed the world's population and most healthy societies can manage it safely. But it doesn't just happen by mistake. And that's one of the things that I do get frustrated about when, you know, talking about the, the Beirut accident is that we criticize a society that got it wrong, but we don't give credit to all those thousands of conscientious, technical, motivated individuals who keep us safe. You know? And I think it is dangerous in safety that we, we tend to say, you've got this wrong, not you've got it wrong for the other 364 days. So I, I think, think about the achievements of our high risk managing systems. Don't become depressed and frustrated, but I do, I do, you know, <laughs> let's be honest. I see, Kevin, I want to uh, hand it back to you because we are coming to the end of the time and hear your thoughts. But one of the other things that I wanted to throw out there is like, um, how do we create a better process to, to bring others along in this journey of evolving our health and safety in organizations? So that's something I wanted to kind of leave with people too, to also think about. Kevin, what are your thoughts about what people have been sharing while people think about well, that? Yeah, I, I just want to uh, thank Tom for that, that insight because he's right. It, you know, we think about the, 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 the item that went wrong versus <clears throat> not just the 365 days, multiply that by thousands of employees times, you know, hundreds of plants. There's, there's a factor there, right? And I think it's, it's the celebration. It's aligning behaviors with, and, and this is a little bit more for Gabe too, since he's going into the strategic planning process here, it, it's, a, it's aligning the behaviors and the, and the in, and incentives or reward systems, because here in the US, we are very in, uh, incentive and reward driven. And if that's the culture you're in, all what we talked about before only can go so far. So you have to align that. I mean, when I've done bonus plans, you know, at the executive level, <clears throat> A big chunk of their bonus, 70, 80% is driven by the results of the company overall. So that sales has an impact on operations, has an impact on HR, and you start getting people not just in their silos talking it. But as you go into the organization, a portion still should be on the results of the organization, but then what can they have an impact on? And how do they have an impact? Because we are very reward and incentive driven, aligning on that you know we know that what gets what gets managed gets worked on right what you re, what you your kpis what you look at ends up being what people focus on so make sure they're all aligned make sure your incentives around that are aligned to the behaviors that you're looking for or the learnings that you want people to do so i think that helps build that culture and so forth and so forth i think um, you know, as we go forward, you know, I just come back to what I said before. Um, these are this type of group is great. Maybe, you know, again, I'm, I'm a service provider. So but for those who have team members, inviting them to participate in one of these type of opportunities, there's the National ASSP, which is coming up in September. Send, you know, you, you probably can't afford, and I'm, I'm putting COVID aside for a second for the, <laughs> when we get back to the point where everybody wants to travel again. You know, you may not be able to send all your team members, but send team members to various, even regional conferences and stuff, but not just to go and hang out, let them have fun, the normal things you do in conference, but you want them to come back with what were their learnings? 
but do it in a serious way that says, okay, we're going to take that learning and how do we bake it into next year's plan or the five-year plan or the 25-year plan, whatever your organization is. It's just going to be a slow process, but it starts with this that we're doing today. It starts with what you take back to your organization to, today from in those conversations that you're going to have with others. And then when you go to, you know, I'll be at ASSP, I'll probably be masked up and all that good stuff, but, you know, be glad to have a conversation with somebody and, and continue this conversation. Um, and, and, but to move it forward throughout the organization, you do because we're in the U S and we are who we are and we look at the stock price, but you have to align it with the rewards and the incentive systems too because we have to get to reality as well. Where are we today? We're not totally holistic as a society that we could say, well, it's not about those rewards and incentives. Today it is. So you make sure that they're aligned with the desired behavior. Not, yes, the desired outcomes, that's a piece of it, but the desired behaviors that you want to instill in the organization. So that's what I got. And I just dropped into the chat um, a while back. I did a, a conversation with Ashling and Darren um, on my podcast where we were actually talking about something called the perfect storm. Um, and, and Darren talks about identifying four types of consequences that actually influence whether or not um, an accident might be the final outcome. It was very interesting because he was also talking about um, incentives that we're not even aware of from other people doing things that reinforces whether or not we're good to continue the behavior, if it's a risk behavior or if we need to take a check-in. Right, so that might be of interest to people um, to kind of look at. I know that we're almost up from our time. Um, did anybody have any last thoughts that they wanted to share before we go? Because I saw Malcolm and Tanya, a lot of people chatting in the chat, so. Okay, Malcolm, go, go ahead, please. You're muted. <clears throat> yeah, I think this was a very good panel and it kind of reminded me, you know, um, uh, when I was a ship driver that um, before we got underway, we, we planned our trip. So uh, kind of like Gabe's strategic plan. And with that, you know, you had to know the history of the navigation, the waters that you're getting ready to travel in. And while you're setting that plan, uh, you put together a brief for your crew and the support that you needed to get underway. You know, you had to know when to replenish, you had to know when to uh, fuel, you had to drill, and all those things were important for getting your ship, you know, to its destination. And I think um, this just reminded me that, you know, the history of uh Sailors getting underway and meeting their destination without peril is the same thing as we do in, a, in safety planning. And, uh, and another thing that didn't really come up, but one of the best things that we can do is reach across the table to each other, you know, get ideals and bring that to our CEOs and boards. Um, I, you know, um, like you, I've worked uh, tribal uh, safety, you know, 
for a few years and I sat on the board of one tribal uh, out of Oklahoma. And you're right, they think several generations ahead and the past generations really have a, a strong influence on their decisions and stuff. And it's, it's really an enjoyable uh, work environment. But uh, I appreciate everybody's input. Tom, as always, you put out some really great information along with Gordon and Kevin and uh, Peter, and I and thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. Peter, did you have? No, no. you're open. No. Oh, okay. Okay. You just have to go. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Peter. So before we, we close out, I wanted to hand it back over to Kevin, our guest, to give us some, some of his last thoughts. And, you know, one of the things also, Kevin, because you are from technology, is is maybe you could give us some recommendations or some things to think about. And I'm not saying we go AI totally, Tanya. I'm not saying that. And Twitter was a horrible place for them to do that experiment. I don't know what they were thinking about. But I do think that we should consider incorporating technology and as well modern technical devices into our evolution of our safety programs. Um, I'm just going to leave it there because we're having a few minutes. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you guys and you all invited me to participate. Uh, hopefully I didn't uh, dominate too much here. Um, you know, you've got the leaders here. You know, I heard it from everybody and, and Malcolm, I don't know if it's uh, Ho-Chunk or the Apaches, but if it's Ho-Chunk, uh, um, that's, that's one of the best they have. And as far as um, not only combining business with culture, the, you know, the triple bottom line view of environmental profits and people, which is another concept I'm a believer in. But anyways, that being said, um, you know, I want to thank everybody. I think the leaders are here. You all seem to be driving this anyways um, before this. So I think carry on. But um, around technology, you know, I've spoken three times in three different organizations this year, recorded webinars. Some are 10 minutes long, some are half hour long on technology. And it's the first part of it isn't as important as the last three minutes of the of the conversation I had. The first part of it is, well, here's all the great technology that's out here, blah, 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 blah. Hey, buy for me, right? The last piece of it is when you're what what is it for? It's an enabler. It doesn't replace people. It truly is an enabler. It's an enabler to empower your people. And when you look for technology, it's really about you know, if, if you've decided already what technology you need, find the expert in that piece of technology. If you're thinking about how does technology play a role in our safety organization, work with folks who aren't tied into one, a single technology, because if they are, all they want to do is sell you their technology, right? Versus what does the organization need? What, how can technology further us? And then what are those three or four pieces that sh are probably should be different? What do they look like? And then work with somebody that doesn't represent a single technology or within a technology, a single vendor, because again, you don't want somebody just selling you what they have on the shelf. You want it to be that they, they're walking the path with you. And, and, and I say this all the time to prospects. Hey, here's, yeah, here's all my services. It's not about selling you this. It's about, I wanna walk the path with you because I don't even know what you need. Why would I try to sell you services when I don't even know what you need yet? 
let's walk a path together. And if the path ends after an assessment phase, great. I've given you something to take and go forward. If it goes into phase two or phase three, great. We're building an evolution together. So I think the same thing with the conversation we've had all along, technology falls within that same realm. Take this core concepts of it's about conversation. It's about engagement of employees all the way to the CEO level because you got to have at least the, the CEO and the board and senior management who at least conceptually believe in it. Then you could start walking that path. So thank you again. I'm sorry you were three minutes over. I probably have to jump too, but thank you, uh, Tamara and Rosa, for inviting me and everybody. Hopefully we'll, we'll connect at some event live. Uh, yeah. If not, maybe one of these again. And we're having our safety connect in October, so watch out for that. Uh, but I, I, you know, I just kind of want to build off of what you're saying about the use of technology. And, and for me, um, two things happened in, in my history of, of working in health and safety. One, you guys already know, when I was working in the store, the, the individual in the store who fell through the, the fake ceiling the teenager, his first week on work, and he didn't know he was up in an area he, he shouldn't have been. And that was under instruction by a store manager, the head manager. So he was told to go up there. And another death that happened, um, I won't name the company, but they it ended up being $6 million because a, a 62-year-old man who had worked at the plant for a very, very long time um, people didn't realize that he was actually in the tuna cooker cleaning it. They thought he had gone to the bathroom mm -hmm. and he died, right? Because somebody, um, cook turned on the, um, it's like a 30 foot long oven, right? That the person was in there. And I was thinking, is there no technology? Is there no sensors or anything that we could be using in situations like this in order to give an alert, hey, there's somebody in this space that it's a hazards, it's a danger zone. And so that's why for me, today's conversation was so important that we start kind of seriously thinking about how can we use technology in a positive way to help create a safer environment for people, right? And it's out there. So I'd love to have a conversation again to open it up a little bit more with you, Kevin, about different ideas that people could be thinking of. If people are interested in that, let me know. But that's all the time we have for today. And thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Have a great day, great weekend, all. Conversational, thank you. Bye.